Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week's biography, Into the Loneliness, is a two-header about a pair of remarkable and controversial women who created their own mythologies, making it hard to know what's true and what's fiction about their bold lives in the outback. Self-styled ethnologist Daisy Bates and gung-ho journalist Ernestine Hill were both unconventional and both passionate about life in the vast Australian interior. Bates, an eccentric figure in Victorian garb, camped with Aboriginal people for decades, documenting Indigenous language and customs. Today, however, many of her views are seen as racist. In 1935, Hill, the author of The Great Australian Loneliness, coaxed Bates to collaborate on a book that would become an international bestseller, The Passing of the Aborigines, published in 1938. But just who wrote what? And what were the backstories of these singular women, so different in age, united by a shared curiosity and appetite for the outback? Eleanor Hogan travelled across the Nullarbor in her own camper van in search of answers. I spoke to her via Zoom in Alice Springs, where she lives. When the book opens, tell us who Daisy Bates is at that point. Daisy Bates was an Irish self-taught ethnologist who was camping in a tent um, by a railway station on the edge of the Nullarbor. And she's met by Ernestine Hill, a journalist, some 40 years her junior, who was intrigued by the stories who she'd heard about Bates and thought that she'd make a great scoop. Well, she wasn't she wasn't wrong there. Give us some dates so that we can sort of have some context for these two women, because it's really important, I think, for us to know the dates in terms of just practical things like what they're wearing. Yeah, so Ernestine Hill visited Bates um, around about 1931, I think it was. Um, so in the early 1930s, um, she'd been travelling the outback since... Um, mid-1930 when she heard these stories. Bates herself was um, really quite a 19th century Victorian character. She hadn't modernised in any way. She'd been born in Roscray in Tipperary in 1859 and she'd come across to Australia as a young woman. Without going into all the ins and outs of her story just yet, um, I'll say that she did decide to head off at one point and start camping and writing down Aboriginal people's languages, but she kitted up in clothes which she thought were fitting to that task, which was in fact um, essentially a kind of Edwardian ensemble of a long, you know, serge skirt and a white shirt and a kind of a dust coat and a gem hat and a veil and gloves, which she also used. And she never really kind of departed from this sort of Mary Poppins get up, you know, probably partly because there weren't a lot of tailors <laughs> on the Nullarbor, but, you know, probably also because she wanted to uh, set boundaries between other people. She wanted to keep a sort of discipline and control um, over things. So she was, in a sense, she became quite anachronistic and stayed quite anachronistic, um, you know, when she went to the uh, 20th century. Interestingly, she had a disciple by the name of Olive Pink, who's very well known in Alice Springs, where I live. In fact, she's sort of like a kind of a local secular saint. And Pink um, was probably about, I'd say, between Ernestine and Daisy's ages. Um, Ernestine was born in 1899, just at the end of the Victorian era. And Olive Pink sought to emulate Bates. So she dressed in the same kind of Edwardian getup. And she's renowned here in the streets of Alice Springs for, you know, many stories sort of being teased by naughty children and being seen as a witch-like figure and you know, a toupee and all sorts of things. So um, Ernestine herself was somewhat younger. As I said, she was born at the end of the Victorian era. She sort of had older parents. Um, her parents were in their late 30s and early 40s when they had her. And so she sort of perhaps gravitated towards Bates in some way because she was actually at home with that kind of Victorian outlook on life and obsession with Victorian figures like well, Queen Victoria herself and Disraeli and all these Dickens and people that Bates was in. But she sort of presented as being like a hard-smoking 
journalists wearing actually quite masculine attire because it was uh, much more convenient and practicable in the outback, such as um, shorts or Oxford bags and elastic-sided boots and a stockman's hat. Eleanor, there are so many different angles and aspects to this book. There are so many different ways that we could talk about this biography. But I think one of the most fascinating things that makes it so distinctive is, well, first of all, that it's the biography really of two women and the dynamic between them and the interest that each has in being with the other, that each needs the other for some reason. But I'm also very interested in the fact that this cannot have been an easy book to write. I mean, no biography ever is. But in this case, you had to go out there and you did in a camper van. You could not have done this from your desk. You could not do this from a library or an archive. Can you just talk a little bit about the physical process of writing this book? Yes. Look, it really started off in the archives, I should say, or it started off with me reading um, The Great Australian Loneliness when I was researching women who'd been around Alice Springs between 1927 and 1931. I was interested in if I could write actually a woman's western about women in Central Australia when uh, Alice Springs had briefly been the capital of a self-governing territory called Central Australia, which is no more. And Ernestine Hill emerged out of this as a quite interesting character. And I was interested in many aspects of Ernestine Hill, but partly because she was so peripatetic. And when I moved on to connecting her with Daisy Bates, which happened when I read her archives, and I had no idea at the time that there was a connection um, between them in the early stages of my research. I, I was intrigued in aspects of the physicality of their life. Um, the fact that they had travelled so much in remote Australia, which is something which I had done as a bureaucrat um, and a researcher, but albeit in some more, rather more cushy circumstances, you know, flying in planes and driving in, uh, you know, four-wheel drive, so there was some swagging and dang and dongers and things like that. But I was interested in the fact that they lived at the extremes of things um, when it was much harder to travel and to live, and, you know, particularly the fact that Bates had been camping in a tent or was actually a couple of tents in a kind of an enclosure behind a breakwind and what it was like to actually be in these smaller spaces and by yourself and having this sense of containment and this sense of mobility at the same time in the case of Hill. And Hill had a whole range of interesting forms of transport that she used, but there was a period in her life in the late 1940s when she and her son Bob, who was about 20 at the time, purchased a, a kind of an old blitz buggy, as they call it, an old army truck, and they attached it to a caravan and they went on this mission to rescue Daisy Bates, who was holed up in this tin shed behind a farmhouse at Streaky Bay and, you know, complaining um, that she was caught here and asking Ernestine to take her back west so she could continue her life of writing up Aboriginal stories. So anyway, that's where I started to think maybe I could retrace some of Ernestine's travel and in particular Ernestine chasing after Daisy. So it was sort of me chasing after Ernestine, chasing after Daisy and to retrace some of the route. And it was partly so I could interview people along the way, but also just to see some of these places because I hadn't actually been to the southwest of Australia much, which was where much of the story takes place. So it was, there were several things. And I was very aware at the time because I'd read been reading, you know, sort of books on how to write biographies, but more the theory behind it, that I was falling into the trap of what's sometimes called the biographical fallacy and embarking on a, you know, on a, a quest. Um, you know, there's some, there's a lot of critique, I guess, particularly from post-structuralist, you know, types, but also actually from David Marr about these biographers who want to leave the homework in and who take on off on quests and who think that visiting a location is actually going to add something to it and so I did feel a bit divided because I was a bit sort of oh you know there are rules and perhaps I should be following them uh, <laughs> and another impulse um, I had was just to throw the rules out and to think that the geography of their stories was in fact very 
important ge geography. And if I'd had more time and finances, I probably would have spent more time in the Caragan and gone further and gone to, um, up to the north and followed some more of Ernestine's travel with because she travelled quite relentlessly uh, through the country, particularly in her later life. But I sort of really had to put strictures on things because I think I ended up cutting about you know, 15,000 words from the manuscript when it was submitted. And you can see it's, it's already quite long. So I really actually ended up using Daisy and Ernestine's story as the kind of the pivotal narrative to move through some of the themes and preoccupations that I wanted to look at. Well, I think that that gives the book a lot of kind of dramatic tension in a way. So I think it's a very successful decision. Let's talk a little bit about Daisy. She is such a paradox. She's so complicated to try and understand with the hindsight that we have today and with the values of today, it's very easy to judge her very, very harshly and to see her as a racist. I think that towards the end of her life, when she's being cared for at one stage in a hospital, a couple of the nurses say that they think of her as an old fraud. I think of her as a genuine eccentric Clearly, I think you are suggesting that there were some things in her life back in Ireland that she was running away from or escaping from. But can you give me a sense of what you think were her motives in going to live amongst Aboriginal people, in saving treats from the passing trains to give to the children, in feeding them, in providing them with sheets and bloomers. What was she doing? And when you say that she was a self-taught ethnographer, what gave her the sort of chutzpah to see herself that way? Well, it's always really hard, I think, to know why, you know, one indivi an individual with a certain kind of background and circumstances you know, follows a particular life. You know, Daisy was a very bright kind of person who had a real systems kind of intelligence. I think that she was quite frustrated. Uh, she was frustrated in her station in life. Um, her mother had died when she was quite young. Her father had remarried. He'd sort of parked the kids, were actually seven of them rather than four, as Daisy made out. He'd parked the kids with um, a grandmother. He'd taken off with another wife to America and they'd actually died in that trip. So I think Daisy probably smarted at the circumstances that she found herself in. She was probably sort of on the edge of the working class, middle class, and she was someone who saw coming to Australia um, as, as an opportunity to leave the past behind her but to remake herself in more glorious terms. And as a young woman, she was quite beautiful. She was very flirtatious and vibrant. She was always the life of the party. And I don't know that I want to go into this um, yet, but she had a series of marriages in very rapid succession, which she was always um, trying to obfuscate and get away from in a certain sense, which she could do in the early days of the colony um, because they hadn't turned out happily. And she was sort of stuck with one of those husbands. And I think that ethnography, um, when she became involved in it, and also journalism, I should say, before that, gave her a way of expressing her intelligence and her talents. And she didn't really break away from her family situation until she was about 45. And then she took off and started camping, you know, albeit with the support of the West Australian Premier, who gave her some tents um, at an Aboriginal reserve on the edges of Perth. Uh, the other thing is that I think that when Bates went up to the northwest, she went off, I should say, there was an interlude when she, you know, made a kind of cocked up excuse with the help of a doctor that she was suffering from nostalgia, some form of depression, I'd say, to go back to England. And there she started learning some journalistic skills, which were foundational in her um, having enough skill to do things like listening and reporting and note taking and forming stories and that kind of thing. And there's that linkage, I think, between what she's doing and the early years of anthropology, which is another interesting aspect of her life. But before I digress too much, I think that she was, my, well, my theory is that she was 
intrigued by the gregariousness of Aboriginal people, that she was a gregarious person. She had been a gregarious um, socialite as a young woman. And being with Aboriginal people, you're immediately drawn into um, relationships and kinship networks. You're immediate, you're pretty immediately placed. And she was quite fascinated by those relationships. So I think it gave her another sort of social domain. I also think um, in the earlier years, like the first 15 years of her uh, career as a ethnographer, as it was from when she was about 45 to 60, she was more on the ball. She didn't have as many health problems as she was starting to develop by the time she got to Ulvia, where she was camping on the edge of the Nullarbor when um, Hill met her. And so she was actually driven, I think, by a lot of intellectual interests there and trying to prove herself to people like Andrew Lang, who was a famous folklorist overseas and other, uh, you know, gentlemen working in the anthropological domain like R.H. Matthews and John Matthews and most infamously Radcliffe Brown from Sydney University, who she had a very acrimonious uh, working relationship with. And when she got to um, all the, uh, the wheels, more mentally, I think, than physically were beginning to fall off because Bates always kept fit by doing all sorts of physical jerks, as she called them, um, working out by skipping and carting wheelbarrows over sand dunes to pick up supplies from the station, you know, two miles away and all this kind of crazy stuff. But I think that um, at Aldea, when she had the camp there and later at Wimbring on the edge of the Nullarbor, she was still curious and she was still writing a lot of notes and those notes are still used by people like lawyers and anthropologists to, to work out which people had pass through that area but it was becoming a bit like a fiefdom where she was sort of like you know having sort of like a ready-made family that she was trying to control at various points so yeah it it appealed to her desire for control I think as well Mm. it is a complex set of motivations um you know she is variously often presented as a bit of a witch and a mamu a monster by aboriginal people and and with good cause but I think that there is a bit more dimension to her in terms of her intellectual interests and her desire sort of being quite an aspirational person to make something of herself. I love the fact that you talk about this quality of gregariousness that appealed to her in Aboriginal culture, because one of the most memorable images really in your book is that you say that she would get up and dance with the Spinifex women and that they encouraged that. I'm thinking, you know, again, she must have had a lot of confidence to believe that it was okay to join in and that this was not their dance yeah I think the other thing was that she was invited and it's also significant that she was involved in the women's dance too and when I did meet with some of the women as I I say in the book you know they'd say to me oh you know she danced the number eight dance and they'd start drawing uh, the number eight shape so it was you know something they remembered quite clearly or the memory had been passed down to them if they were too young to have been part of that But the other thing was in her hubris, um, her intellectual hubris and her desire that, you know, that terrible avidity which can seize researchers, she did try to present herself as a genderless spirit creature and she boasted that she got knowledge from the men, though there are Aboriginal men who would say that that is not the case, that they didn't, you know, pass on secrets and knowledge. Uh, The other thing to say is that she, early on when she went to Uldia, she had an Aboriginal protector, a man who, you know, introduced himself, who's known as Mr Windlass's father's father um, locally these days, um, who told her, like, where she could go and where she couldn't go and, you know, instructed her about names of, of plants. So, you know, I think there's that generosity and curiosity on the part of Anangu as well, drawing someone in and being curious about them too. But there's some really quite sour aspects to that friendship in how Bates tried to manipulate, you know, things and use a power differential of the, you know, the colonial era that was coming in with her. 
Um, yeah, and similarly at um, Mamtha in uh, Perth where she was camping, she also had a couple of like sort of Aboriginal advisors like a man by the name of Jubach and also a traditional owner named Fanny Bullbrook. So she was not, you know, I, I think that there was still, you know, a sense, as I say, of, of people being quite interested in her and, and also often seeing her as a bit of a freak and a bit of a sad case, like people at Uldi are commonly say, like, you know, various missionaries and others went there and they'd say, you know, hush, she windmills and she's a bit crazy and that kind of thing. Though I do think that by the time she was at Uldia, dementia and other mental health problems were beginning to set in. Yes, and the dementia may partially also have been caused by malnourishment. I mean, she was blind later on in life, for example. I mean, she was close to blind, so she was in very poor shape in a very harsh landscape. Before we get on to one of the most contentious aspects of her, you mentioned missionaries passing through there. Was there any sense, do you think, Eleanor, that she saw herself as some kind of a missionary? She played lip service to a kind of a theism, like a kind of 19th century, you know, for God, king and country kind of theism. But she was very critical of the missionaries because she felt that they were removing Aboriginal people from their culture and from their cultural ways. So a lot of it, I would say, was really often tied up within her ego about her desire to save the culture herself, like in terms which she saw as passing away to save it through writing it up rather than to convert people to Western civilization. I think she was keener to keep people away from Western civilization, if anything, because she wanted them to maintain their traditional ways. So she was interested in the possibility of reserves and things like that, which is a an idea which, you know, continued throughout the 20th century. Yeah. So that brings us to the most contentious or one of the most contentious aspects of the way she thought and behaved, which was around so-called half-castes. So she didn't want the culture to be diluted by contact with Western culture, and she really hated the idea of miscegenation, didn't she? Absolutely, and she saw it as diluting uh, the purity of of the race and so behind that is a very um, rigid idea about different race identities and um, you know there's earlier parts in her notes where she's interested in things like skulls and you know things like that as a way of you know looking at Aboriginal brains and that kind of very evolutionary um, idea and so that's sort of what she had in mind but again it would be tied up in also at one level in her desire to have power she, she wanted to be a protector and to have this kind of little province um you know at one point she was interested in you know having some sort of a central reserve in the Peterman Ranges she wasn't the only person who was interested in that idea so it was I'd say she was partly caught up in ideas from 19th century anthropology which subscribe to kind of ideas of evolutionary racial superiority, which we object today and which are, you know, based in bad science and all sorts of things. But I'd say that it was also tied up with her narcissism too. Yes. So you do think of her as a narcissist, do you? Oh, she's a highly narcissistic personality. I've even thought at times that she was possibly a sociopath. I'm not entirely sure, but she's, she's definitely a highly narcissistic personality. Yeah. One of the other very controversial aspects to her story is the idea that she put about that Aboriginal people were cannibals. What was going on there? I think a lot of desperation on her behalf and I don't want to support what she in trying to psychologize or you know explain why she came to this position. I, I'm not in support of any of it. I guess there was an idea floating around much earlier when she first started working for the West Australian government. One of her early jobs when she came back from studying to be a journalist in England, or training to be a journalist, I should say, was collating these kind of vocabularies, these surveys about people's practices in different areas. And a question within that was, is cannibalism thought to exist here so it was sort of on people's radars and there were you know suggestions from various missionaries um, 
and so forth. And there are some mortuary rituals um, in some Aboriginal groups where people, you know, stylistically, you know, exchange flesh, things like, like that. But it's not for, for people to be actually eating their children on a regular basis um, is not sustainable. You know, there's not any documentation for that. And there's also another aspect which um, Mountford, uh, who's an, an anthropologist who knew her mentioned, um, he said, well, she should have known that, you know, some groups make an idle threat. Don't go over there. Those people eat their children. And he said she should have been a good enough anthropologist to know that. And I have heard people even here say that they've, had experiences like, you know, 20, 30 years ago when people were, were still making it and it's understood to be a sort of an empty threat. But her motivations behind it, I think that she was quite desperate for attention, like the anthropological career and the publications that she had wanted hadn't transpired. You know, her notes got published very much later um, as a book by Isabel White in the 1980s. And she was still desperate for attention. She was desperate to make money. So she started peddling these quite sensationalistic articles about cannibalism as a way of trying to get that intention and revenue when she was up in um, Aldea at the time, which sounds like a quite peculiar thing to do. And it also shows a certain level of disrespect, to say the least, for the people who've been, you know, your hosts, as it were, in many ways, and taken you in and, you know, made sure that you didn't come to too much harm. You know, she wanted an official title. You mentioned before when she was thinking about reserves or reservations, you know, she wanted to be appointed the sort of protector of Aborigines. She was a terrible snob about the white people around her, was she not? Oh, yes, yes. And she was a dreadful, um, she was a terrible snob. And, you know, part of that is about her kind of Becky Sharp-like opportunism of trying to obfuscate the past and pretend that she's actually from another class. Um, she spun a story which Ernestine Hill sort of fell for, hook, line and sinker, that she was actually descended from landed gentry and that she'd met Queen Victoria in a corridor when she was young and she'd had her teeth fixed by Disraeli's dentist and all these other ridiculous stories. Yeah, and I think, and that's also a way of trying to distance herself from her own origins and, um, you know, perhaps from the fact that she'd had relationships with people who were from that caste as well. Yes, because in fact, if we did go back and talk about her three husbands, it's not like she was married to anyone particularly grand or high and mighty who was able to sort of push her into a much higher level of society. But we might park the men because they are they are a distraction, fascinating though they are. You mentioned there that Ernestine fell for her origin story, Hook, Line and Sinker. And that makes me wonder, Eleanor, do you think that Ernestine was gullible when it came to some of Daisy's own self-mythologizing. So, for example, did Ernestine also fall for the cannibalism story without questioning it? Yes, Ernestine tended to be credulous. Um, she wasn't stupid, I would say, but she was someone who tended to be very idealistic and to want to believe is my interpretation of things. There were various uh, Bushmen who boasted of about the Blarney which they told her there's actually a couple of interviews in the archives here of people saying that people here in Alice Springs I should say saying that they told a great sort of load of hogwash essentially to Ernestine and she <laughs> believed it you know later on she said that she'd been you know way too sort of credulous at the time when she visited so she she visited Daisy Bates's camp and she also she got sort of swept up in this whole story that they were actually following a woman who'd gone who'd left the camp with a babe in arms who she was you know going to kill and then the very next day as it was the babe in arms and another young child and the woman actually turned up in the camp and they were safe and sound uh, which <laughs> would seem like evidence of a sword that nothing much was going on but I think there's that aspect of things um, she did also call herself a wicked and ruthless 
young journalist. So in later years, that's the phrase which she used to Marguerite Bonin, who was a postgraduate student who interviewed Ernestine towards the end of her life. So I think, again, it's a bit of a complex situation. She was young and on the make. She was probably trying to impress her erstwhile lover, uh, R.C. Packer, who was the head of the Associated Newspaper Group. So there's, there's a mixture of what Ernestine wanted to believe and I'd say also her ambitions too there. Later on in the book, you quote letters from Daisy to Ernestine where she uses the word love. I love you dearly, I think it's one line. And it seems to me that you do this with great delicacy and sensitivity, but you do seem to be inviting speculation that could their relationship have ever been anything more than a collaboration and also possibly a friendship? Yeah. Um, look, I have to say that when I first came across Daisy Bates's letters to Ernestine Hill in the Ernestine Hill's archives, I had absolutely no idea that there'd been a connection with them. And I remember at the time I was having a lot of problems trying to make head nor tail of some of Ernestine Hill's notes. And I, so I went to this file and I read the first letter and there was all this kind of, I love you dearly, please come back. And I did actually think, is it possible that they actually were lovers, had a relationship? Mm. Because the writing was so intense and I kept tracking it through the letters and there would be similar sentiments expressed. And there were also things where Bates would say, I, I wish you could come to this place where I'm staying in Norwood and lie on the poster bed with me and I could stroke your fine hair and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I did really wonder if there'd been a relationship there. I did also wonder why people like Bob Reese, who'd written quite a solid biography of Bates, hadn't made any mention of it. And he tended to see another person, a newspaper editor of the Argus, as being a possible sort of someone who Bates had unrequited you know, love for. And look, part of my problem was that there's no real evidence for it. The other thing I felt with it was that there are often like a lot of modulations in pitch in the letters, which I found a bit strange, that she'd be saying that and it would be quite shriekly and manipulative and then it would be sort of back to business. She's <laughs> a, a Victorian, so it's this high blow and writing. I couldn't really resolve it in the end. We're not going to spend too much time on the men in their lives except for their sons because I find this such an interesting um, contrast between them. Daisy has a son whom she seems to care very little about, neglects, really abandons. But when it comes to Ernestine, her relationship with her son is so intense and so needy and clingy and the desperation that she exhibits when it looks as if he is going to have to go to war in World War One is just completely off the charts, isn't it? Yeah, it was incredibly intense. And also the other thing which I noticed uh, in the letters in Ernestine's archives was that people would talk about Bob and Ernestine almost as if they were a couple. It was yes. like, you know, well, Bob and Ernestine visited, Bob and Ernestine this, we saw Bob and Ernestine. Um, yeah, so I think it's tied up perhaps in the fact that in some ways he's a proxy for her lost love with R.C. Packer, the head of the Packer dynasty, um, Frank Packer's father, with whom, according to the family at least, she had a clandestine affair and um, Robert is her son, you know, with the same name as her father and as R.C. Packer. You know, R.C. Packer was Robert Clyde, you know, was really the only connection she had with that affair. You know, Packer also died when he was relatively young in his 40s and you know never probably saw his son if he was indeed the father except you know maybe in the distance once when Ernestine took him to Essendon Airport and sort of waved him around hoping that the packer would see him so she was 
I think it's that she also she was in a very female dominated family after her own father died and you know she had the support of her mother and her aunt and uh, Ernestine acted as the breadwinner for them but when the two um, older women died in rapid succession during the war you know, Ernestine just had this one person who was like the token of her family life and the, the, the clandestine relationship. So she became heavily dependent on Robert, who was, uh, you know, conscription age, high school age during the war. And um, the other thing to say, which is a bit curious about this, is that Robert claims his mother was very hard to know despite yes. having spent so much time with her. And partly that was because he was farmed out into the care of her auntie Kit who sort of followed you know Ernestine a bit like a camp follower and took him to school in Broome where Ernestine was up in that area and so forth and later ran the household for them in Adelaide and his relationship was originally closer with his aunt and it wasn't really until he was in high school it seems that Ernestine was really you know more in his orbit and presence but she had this intensely sentimental view of him I think even if she wasn't there whereas you know Bates as you said you know just saw Jam her son as this kind of worthless milksop with a weak lip and way too much like his father. What do you think were Ernestine's politics? Oh that's a really interesting question because Ernestine tried to present herself as apolitical in a certain sense so she kind of positioned herself against the left-wing, the Marxist preoccupations of some of the Southern state writers, people like Kylie Tennant. But I do see her as being interested in the situation of Aboriginal people. It is almost more like, um, look, look, she was really still part of a generation who believed that Aboriginal people were destined to die out, but she was also interested like Bates in what she was seeing as she went around Australia that she was seeing people on the road who had been dislocated from their traditional countries and essentially their traditional lands and were essentially becoming beggars so there was a compassionate interest there too. Um, She did write a lot about things such as massacres, uh, people not being paid or fed properly on missions and, you know, certain areas. I don't think that she sits in a kind of left-wing politics as we would see it now. Look, there's a whole strand in which she is interested in the exoticism of the North, but she's also interested in the welfare of the North and particularly women's experience in the North and when she was editing the um, women's pages for the ABC Weekly which is a you know now disappeared sort of television radio or radio magazine it was um, you know she was wanting to go up north to talk about women and children's experience when they'd been um, you know dislocated from Darwin during the, the bombing of Darwin she was also wanting to talk about you know such things as women being involved in Um, munitions and working and women in factory lanes and you know also she talked quite a bit about you know the experience of Asian women in Darwin and 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 so forth so it's not sort of a cut and dried situation Um, she was pushed it seems by Catherine Susanna Pritchard to be more disclosive about the massacres and so forth which happened in the colonisation of the Territory. So her book, The Territory, is much more blatant in talking about massacres than something like The Great Australian Loneliness, which tends to gloss over, um, you know, black and white conflict, as she called it. Um, She became more interested in in the treatment of Aboriginal people as she went on, and she was more interested in how different mythologies could be incorporated incorporated in our national um, identity, which I found quite forward-looking. And I also think that in some ways, The Great Australian Loneliness, which is a really uneven book in terms of, you know, her having a straight view on (laughs) anything, um, in some ways it sort of exposes a lot of the different competing voices of a certain period and also talks about the 
quite diverse multicultural experience of remote Australia, which is not something that, you know, how we often see remote Australia, we often tend to see it as kind of, you know, like, um, you know, settlers pitted against Aboriginal people, that, that kind of thing. So that's where I think she actually had the, the germs of a kind of a multicultural vision. And certainly in her notes um, that she, you know, she wrote many novels and plays and so forth, which she didn't, um, she could never bring herself to finish um, as she became uh, more and more vagrant and um, more and more odd, I think, um, after Bob's conscription battle at the end of the war. You know, she didn't uh, really publish anything between about 1951 and, and she published a book about uh, Daisy Bates posthumously or, or rather one that she'd written was published after her death but she was I think in many ways trying to she'd taken a um, she was trying to emulate Daisy Bates in a certain sense in terms of like writing down languages and stories and observations of an era that she saw which was passing you know lots of people in the 19th and even early 20th century destroyed, burnt, as a matter of course, diaries and letters. Every biographer that I interview of anyone who existed in that period, particularly the 19th century, has to contend with the fact that most people at some stage burn something, something that we would all kill to read and have. But what do you think are Daisy's motives in terms of what she chose to destroy? Oh, that's a really, um, it's a really interesting question. And it, it's a hard question as well. Um, I think that she's probably concerned about losing control over the representation of people. She did have a very, a golden era um, sort of view of the 19th century, including some 19th century people in Australia, though obviously she'd had, you know, problem with a lot of blokes who wouldn't let her, her speak. Yeah, so I think that there's that motivation. Um, goodness knows there may be things about her own life that she wanted to destroy in the process of destroying those notes like her marriages and so forth. Um, the other interesting thing to say, though, was that she was you know, she was sort of reasonably outspoken in some ways about, you know, what she saw unfolding on the quarantine islands off um, the coast of West Australia. You know, I can't say these quite properly. I think it's Dory and Bernier Islands where there was a quarantine for, um, you know, Aboriginal and, and um, men and women on separate islands. And she was actually, you know, taking message sticks back saying, you know, this person's dead and this person wants to get in contact with that. So she did um, have a lot of compassion um, for that situation, though, again, she was sort of competing against the male anthropologists in the scene. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is this strange desire to protect the members of that cast, which she herself was not actually quite a part of either, um, mysteriously. Just a delicious little detail. This is a sort of silly aside, really. But what made Daisy write to Hitler? Oh, well, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> that's just really confusing. So the context of that is that at one point, um, after working with Ernestine and others on the passing of the Aborigines, she decided Adelaide was too expensive and she wanted to be back with, you know, quote, unquote, her natives. So she took off to Loxton, um, which is, you know, up in a corner of South Australia near the Victorian border on the Murray. It's, it's really quite a nice town. But she was writing to Hitler, inviting him to have a look at Loxton, where, you know, we all get on quite well, including with the you know, the, the German fruit pickers or, or whatever. I think it's, I mean, I, I, you know, I think she was getting a bit dotty, but I think it's also this kind of idea that she was, you know, herself a sort of Queen Victoria figure who could sort of intercede. I mean, she wanted to be a protector, you know. She had, I don't know, she probably recognised another, you know, megalomaniac <laughs> when she saw one. 
One of the things that you did that I found really fascinating was in order to try and establish the sort of veracity of Ernestine's claims to have written the passing of the Aborigines with Daisy, you you did some very unusual, it seems to me, linguistic sleuthing. Can you just say a little bit about what you did and what you were hoping to find or what you did find? Yes, well, a friend of mine suggested that I approach these kind of um, computational stylistic linguistic sleuths at the University of Newcastle who'd been involved in trying to work out the authorship of uh, you know, various literature, including, um, you know, the authorship of some of Shakespeare's plays and and so forth. So I thought it would be interesting to see um, to what extent uh, there might be some truth in Ernestine's claim that she'd actually written the passing of the Aborigines. And, you know, her claims became, over time, you know, she wasn't just saying she was collaborating. She was saying, I did the whole thing, um, essentially. Um, so I went and I talked to these people, um, lovely people, Hugh Craig and um, Alexis Antonia, and what we ended up doing was putting together some samples from Ernestine's writing in The Great Australian Loneliness and also Daisy Bates's letters, and they run a kind of analysis um, to see, to look for particular features of their writing um, so interestingly, in someone like Daisy Bates's writing, there's a lot of I and me, um, which appears, whereas, for example, in Ernestine's, there's not so much of that. It's all kind of they and them because she's a much more omniscient presence kind of writer. Um, yeah, and um, so they look for certain stylistic features and then they kind of run um, this analysis on the passing of the Aborigines across the chapters there and what it showed was that there tended to be the presence of um, Daisy more strongly in some chapters and Ernestine more strongly in others. And then there was another kind of text which they identified called a blended ghostwriter text where it was, um, you know, I guess essentially had its own features and it was very hard to, you know, say, you know, which writer kind of dominated in that situation. But you know, in a nutshell, what they said, to be honest, really concurred with what um, Ernestine said earlier about the writing of the book, which was that um, Bates in the morning had dictated stories to her and then she'd gone and written them up and she'd pulled them together into a narrative. So you tended to have like um, stories with more sort of verbal storytelling features in them and then they'd have a superstructure around them, you know, perhaps that... Um, Ernestine had developed to tie them together. I'm always interested in biographers who are coming after other biographers because you get the benefit of building on the work that's already been done, but it can also be very intimidating. Now, there had been several biographies of Daisy Bates and um, several of them had agendas of one kind or another. Can you just talk a little bit about how you felt about what had been written before so that you could find your own way into the space and into telling the story that you tell? It was difficult and there were... Um, there, there was really a range and, you know, um, Ernestine's you know, was one of the people who'd actually written one of those books. You know, she's sort of written a conjoint book, um, Kabali, uh, about it. And um, also Elizabeth Salter, who'd sort of written the official biography at the same time. And both of them tended to romanticise Bates and to gloss over, um, you know, some of the earlier, uh, you know, aspects of her life. Um, I, I guess I think in particular some of the Indigenous aspects of you know Bates's relationship to Indigenous people I felt could have were, you know could be unpicked further and I guess um, it was also just a way of perhaps positioning Ernestine and Bates together as part of a trajectory because I saw even though they both for example believed that Aboriginal people were destined to to die out which we know is far from true they in some ways kind of expressed a kind of progression um, of 
change. They covered like quite a sweep of, of history too in terms of um, people's attitudes and policy around um, Aboriginal people. I mean, towards the end of, um, you know, the span which they cover when Ernestine dies, you're beginning to have the rise of civil rights movements and, and so forth. Um, people like Kevin Gilbert and Ujiru Nunak are starting to protest for civil rights. Um, so I really saw it as a way of, of putting them together, as a way of sweeping through, through that period. Um, I guess I felt that um, there was more that could be said, that there was more that could be brought into the narrative in terms of the women's relationship with Indigenous people and the history, the sweep of history which they covered and the changes in government policy and so forth. I felt also that, you know, there have been a few documentaries and so forth about, you know, Bates on the edge of the Nullarbor, but I felt that it was important to actually bring in some of the Aboriginal voices to hear some of the Aboriginal opinions on Bates. And in doing my research, I did find a conflict, um, you know, conflicting opinions, particularly from people who were, you know, of full descent, um, who had quite positive experiences of Bates in their childhood, because they were, you know, also they were little children and, you know, that they were perhaps, you know, likely to be less critical of an adult who's kind to them you know, compared to people who are of mixed descent and, um, you know, whose Bates's views at least uh, had influenced in terms of child removal. So I thought that that was a dimension a bit further um, in terms of bringing that kind of experience and history into the narrative. In her quest to understand Bates, Eleanor Hogan spoke to the descendants of Indigenous people who remembered her, many of them critically. That gives Into the Loneliness a contemporary edge and perspective that previous biographies have lacked. Inevitably, Bates dominates the narrative, but Ernestine Hill emerges as a fascinating character in her own right, fearless and intrepid in her quest for a scoop and her willingness to document an Australia few got to see. The story of their difficult collaboration is at times quite convoluted as Eleanor tries to work out the dynamics between two complex, forceful women, both of them unreliable narrators in their own way. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.